I would encourage investors in private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, otherwise, uh, to, to look at that qualitatively before taking um, that big leap into working with somebody, especially somebody, frankly, who, who is excessively charismatic and has kind of a messianic complex. That, to me, uh, warrants and invites even more scrutiny. One, two, three, Hi, Pam. Happy New Year. I hope you got some good relaxation and disconnect time over the holiday season. Today, we've got a really special guest. Her name is Jen Hoare. She's the Managing Director at Forward Risk Intelligence, which is a corporate investigation and intelligence firm. If you are like me, you did not know what this was before. And so Jen tells us all about what the applications of her work are and how listening and asking good questions are key, as well as how to do those well. She talks about how investors and founders can do a better job of diligencing their partners and how to do so. She speaks specifically to a few examples, for instance, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman and WeWork slash Flow, and what we can learn from those cases, and much, much more. Jen used to be a journalist from CBS as well as ABC. She also worked in threat discovery at Facebook. I had a blast learning from her today, and here she is. Jen, I am so excited to have you on today. We have been looking forward to this. We've got so much to cover, so how about we dive right in? Yes, please. All right. You're a recovering journalist turned corporate intelligence and investigations. How would you describe that? Yes. Recovering journalist is my whimsical way of saying that I still very much identify with a lot of the uh, tradecraft of being a reporter, which is talking to smart people to learn as much as possible from them about a given subject. And that still features very prominently in the work that I do. And in corporate intelligence and investigations, it's a fancy term for um, explaining or or denoting um, firms like mine, Forward Risk and Intelligence, um, and other firms in the space, work on behalf of law firms, investors of all kinds, to inform Mm -hmm. them about any kind of transaction or deal or project or executive with which and with whom they're getting involved and learning as much as possible about them to avoid any kind of debacles, which we'll talk about later, um, that could go wrong in, in a business partnership of some kind. So that comes from doing a lot of really in-depth research through public records, by talking to experts, which is what I specialize in and enjoy, and harmonizing all this information to inform what should I do in this transaction or this deal? Should I not do it? How should I work with this person? Should I not work with them? Uh, what are the nuances of how best to succeed in whatever um, acquisition, transaction, or partnership that's afoot? So interesting. So understanding that some applications of your work could be anyone that's looking to hire someone. Anything else there you want to share? Definitely could be an executive level hire, it could be an appointment to a board. Um, More commonly in the work that I've done over the years in the corporate intelligence space, it's a combination of looking at a company and its management team. 
So understanding the reputation and track record of the, the um, members of the C-suite, how that company stacks up in its market and the landscape of competitors, um, how the reputation for integrity and ethics stacks up against others or on its own. Um, and those are, those are qualitative things, but increasingly, as I'm sure you as a, a consumer of a lot of business leadership and management literature know this qualitative stuff related to integrity and ethics is more important than ever. Uh, certainly there are technical and financial areas of analysis that any investor would need to look at to discern the value proposition of a business. But when looking at the, the team that's running the company, that, that forms, in a sense, the identity of that company, understanding if they're good people and if they are prudent in decision-making and have good financial and ethical acumen is at a, at a premium right now. Right. Totally. And you know, Jen, you and I have talked about how these skills that are so crucial in your work, and you've described them as listening, listening well, as well as asking good questions are applicable to any profession. In any profession, you're working with humans, with people. And I would add also personal life. Um, so what is at risk, Jen, when we don't listen and ask good questions? Uh, no, that's a great way of framing it. There's a lot that we miss out on. We miss out on the opportunity to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, according to me, both personally and professionally, one of the best ways to connect with another person is to engage curiosity and to ask about them, to learn as much as possible from them about them. Yeah. I think um, people are an incredible largesse of information insofar as what's going on in your industry or other companies that you want to learn about, or um, how could you learn about the world at large, um, economically, politically, geopolitically, and otherwise, people are great resources of information that go beyond and or complement what you could read online. Um, our mutual friend, Matt Abrahams, I, I noticed um, and I found it very endearing and insightful when he was recently on um, your podcast, he talked about how he engages curiosity and always tries to learn more about things that he's unfamiliar with. And, and I noted that he said, you know, to have the confidence to ask about what I don't know about. And I think there's a, um, a misunderstanding that people think, well, if I ask something I don't know about, then I'm going to look dumb. Quite the contrary. You exhibit confidence and you grow and you learn more when you have that humility to say, I don't know something. Um, so back to your question, what's at risk? We risk not expanding ourselves, our knowledge about our fields, our jobs, our colleagues, our clients, and others when we don't have that humility and confidence to uh, put the, the spotlight on somebody else to help educate us and edify us. I so love that framing. I think of us as constant works in progress, and it feels with that framing like you're really missing out and leaving things on the table that you could have used to make you better at whatever job that you're looking at through whatever lens. And I would add to that, um, somewhat counterintuitively, I encourage 
colleagues um, and others that I've trained in the sort of the trade craft of human intelligence, aka finding and interviewing smart people, <laughs> that going into a meeting, especially a first meeting, say with a potential client or sales target, and asking about their work and their priorities and their concerns and understanding their business is one of the best things you could do as a means to then go back later and say, you know, I really absorbed, really appreciated learning from you. And I really absorbed what you told me about what your challenges are. Here are some possible solutions and ways I can remediate and address some of the things that you shared with what my business offers. I think back to um, one of my mentors and good friend um, is, a, is a gentleman. He, he was a, a congressman. He had also spent 10 years in the, in the CIA as a case officer. And he always said to me, what's the point of the first meeting? To get a second meeting. And one of the ways that you do that is, in my experience and opinion, is to engage your, the other party that maybe it's your client to learn as much as possible about them so you have an opportunity to go back for further interaction. And that's what sustains a relationship. Absolutely. And people can tell when you're listening with care and you actually are curious or just listening in a shallow sense. That's right. And one of the funny diagnostics for being able to tell if somebody is not really listening is if later in the conversation something came up that comes up that you mentioned earlier and they forgot it. Um, I would argue they weren't listening in the first place, but maybe that's up for debate. <laughs> I, I Maybe often they're joke, listening so intently they had to leave that's it, right. put it oh, down for a second. Yes. <laughs> I do want to assume good intent at all times. Right, um, right. I, I often joke, people say to me, oh, you have such a great memory. You remember something I said. And I say, I don't think I have you know, these extra lobes in my brain or very nuanced lobes <laughs> in my brain that give me, a give me a better memory. I do think I try to listen as much as I can. And then that, that helps retention. And so I, I often, um, when I'm teaching others about how to... Uh, engage this this tradecraft or this skill of um, talking to sources and listening and interviewing people. I say that listening is a gift you give others, but you also give to yourself because it's an opportunity to uh, absorb and retain information. Love it. So I'm in. I can definitely learn more about how to listen and ask questions. I am hosting a podcast after all, so I'm all ears, Jen. Can we do a quick masterclass on how to listen well and ask good questions? Sure. Um, I think counterintuitively, once again, um, I think asking good questions actually starts with not having a questionnaire written out about what you're going to address. Um, now, I do understand and I support and encourage if it provides comfort to somebody to sketch out what you want to accomplish. I think that's important. But I think the fluidity and receptivity that um, a, a really good conversation or interview um, has comes from listening to what the other person says and following up on what you've heard. And that foments the opportunity to learn more and not having an agenda. Um, and also I would posit that when you have that agenda, that's very rigid and you have questions written out and you have to go to that next question, you miss out on the richness of what someone must have said in my line of work. That's essential because if someone tells me where the bodies are buried, proverbially speaking, and I'm not listening, I say, okay, and what dates, my next question is, and what dates were you at this job? 
you miss out on the opportunity to say, okay, well, say more about where the bodies are buried, proverbially speaking, of course. Um, because people say really insightful, rich things, um, and, and the key is to follow up on that. And that's one way to show them that you're listening. And the other way is you know, to, to continue the conversation to be able to elicit more insight. Um, that, that's one tip that I could give overall, and that's applicable to any interaction. Um, I do like, um, and I think you and I had talked about this recently, um, Julia Minson at Harvard Kennedy School, one of your alma maters, um, talks about this concept of conversational receptiveness or receptivity. And um, I think that's really a really interesting concept as it relates to being open to what somebody says that may be divergent from your own point of view. And, and that's especially essential in uh, talking to people that disagree with you, uh, being in a situation that may be confrontational, and, and adopting that position so you really can put yourself in the position of not gunning to talk, but actually allowing the other person to say uh, what they are uh, espousing that may be uncomfortable for you. So from that, I would take away tip two, which is the willingness to be uncomfortable with um, hearing things that either you don't like that, and that you don't understand and being willing to follow up with further questions. Yulia was my negotiations professor, and we have to get her on the podcast soon. Oh, I would can. love to listen to that. She was wonderful, and she's done a lot of work looking at Ukraine, Russia, and the conflict there. Something that I got reminded of while you were sharing on listening and asking questions is there's this notion of t levels of listening from coaching. And you have level one listening, level two listening, and level three. And level one is when you are not really listening and just thinking about, oh my gosh, I got to get to my next question and I got to say this and not really paying attention to what the person is speaking about. And level three is all the way very focused, dialed in, and just very fluid to how the conversation is going. Very interesting. I wasn't familiar with that framework. Um, with that level three listening, um, that I, I will acknowledge that that does require the level of presence of mind and spirit and body um, of your attention. It, it requires energy. I am definitely an extrovert and I enjoy and get a lot of energy from learning from other people and talking to other people. But I will acknowledge that um, it does take a, a decent amount of energy to do that well. And, and it can be draining and not in a negative way, just in a natural um, way of human interaction. And if you bring that attention as you will and do as a coach um, and in other roles such as mine, interviewing people, interviewing sources to, to learn from them about complex subjects, um, it, it's important to acknowledge you know, the break that you need to be able to rededicate to that because that is, it is a battery that does get depleted. Um, and then if, if you say that you're going to do five coaching sessions in a row, but you're depleted, then you're going to probably degrade to a level one listening in a way that you don't want to with a client of yours, or in, in, a, in my case, a source of mine. I want to be fully present to have that ability to immerse myself in what they're saying and follow up. One more thing that I thought to, to add, and I forgive me for the monologue, is um, the, the follow-up requires really being willing to have that humility to say, I need to go back to something. I didn't understand something you said. Um, I want to revisit something you said. I want to make sure I get that right. That's another 
instance of going back to Matt Abrahams, having the confidence to say, I didn't follow. And I would argue that doing that is A, more flattering to your interlocutor, but, but B, it's essential for developing real understanding and really learning from other people, is not letting that, that superficial acronym or an acronym or a superficial comment go by unaddressed if you don't understand, because it's going to come up later, but also you, you owe the, the courtesy to your, to your guest, to your source, to your client, um, the gift of understanding them and, and working as hard as you can to understand them. Your first point was so astute as a coach, definitely draining when you're listening so intently to folks and definitely need to build in that me recharge time, especially as an introvert that I am, not an extrovert. Uh, and yes, I love the shout out as well to Matt. Definitely check out Think Fast, Talk Smart. He covers lots of essentials of communication there that are relevant to this conversation. Definitely. All right, Jen, I'd love to switch topics a little bit with you here and talk about something that we've also connected on, which is our value of connection, human connection, and the implications it has, particularly in interactions, but today's geopolitical environment. would love to talk about what we stand to lose by not valuing connection, and then how can we build connection? Yeah, start on the building connection, and you'll be unsurprised to hear that I think that really uh, starts with a humility um, mm -hmm. that leads to deferring to the other side and deferring to the other side, whether it's an interlocutor personally or uh, geopolitically, is to, to do um, what I believe is called perspective taking. You don't have to agree with somebody else, but you do have to uh, give them the space to understand where they're coming from. And this, again, goes back to Professor Minson. And, and this notion of conversational receptiveness, um, of, of not uh, necessarily knowing you're going to convert to the other side or, or promising that, but allowing the opportunity to try to learn where someone is coming from. And that, uh, that definitely nurtures connection. Uh, curiosity is just, it, it's just an essential professional and personal value that, that I, I've found to be um, extremely helpful, both in help, uh, both in um, positive and easy, seamless situations, as well as tense adversarial ones, because it immediately diffuses the 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 sense of antagonism between two sides and curiosity about what is it that you want, what is it that your goal, what are your goals, um, what are what are your challenges, what are your challenges with me or or my side, my firm, my uh, position, I, I think that in conversation, these, these, these practices of curiosity, perspective taking, and question asking can never steer you astray. Um, at the very least, it, it shows that you're open to hearing the other side. And I think what's missing in a lot of dialogue today um, in business and politically is, is just the, the talking over the other side and the, the promulgation of views versus um, the exchange of views through asking questions and, as we said at the beginning, real dialogue. I chatted recently with Joel Peterson, who's a professor at Stanford on this exact topic, and he shared an analogy that I really loved, which is just let it air dry in the sun. Just 
expose it to the sun and let it be there. So share your views and opinions, have someone else share theirs. Like you describe, ask them first for, Hey, what's your point of view? And then restate it to them and to a point where they feel like they were heard. And that really unlocks folks in, in the curiosity is so disarming and charming. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised. You may learn something new. You may be able to have healthy debate and that's so needed these days. And interestingly, you, you do convey what matters to you through the questions you ask. So mm-hmm. in a way, you're representing your perspective with the items where you take interest and where you exhibit curiosity. Um, now, I, I'm not proposing any kind of agenda through the questions you ask, but I do think you can show someone what you care about through the mm-hmm. interest that you take in certain aspects of someone's life, their business, their work, their, their um, priorities, what their work, you know, their goals and aspirations. Um, and so it kind of is a, is a twofer in that way. You learn about yeah. them, but you also indicate subtly what interests you. Yeah. And your values. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And then in the context of polarization, Jen, and how we communicate, what role do you think social media companies have to play in all this? Having that is worked. a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> well, having worked at one. Um, right. That's why I bring it up. <laughs> I mean, I think the fundamental um, inflammation of, of our polarized society is that, um, and, and forgive me for this very imprecise capturing of a whole body of research, but people bond over what they hate not over what they like. So I think what social media platforms capitalize on is disagreement, discord. Um, obviously, you know, th- you throw in something like Russian information warfare, which also um, capitalizes on that as a strategy and tactic to, to create an adversarial uh, dynamic. I mean, that, that's happening at scale on social media platforms. And it, it is... Um, is completely contrary to everything we've been talking about, which is the true exchange of ideas and curiosity. It's all about people talking at each other. There's not a, oh, hello, stranger on the other side of the globe. What do you think about this? It's the, you're wrong. Here's what you should think. It is completely at odds with any form of dialogue. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily have a solution to that, but I, I feel pretty confident in diagnosing the problem. And I'm, I'm just adding to the voices that have already um, uh, reinforced this, that the, the lack of dialogue, curiosity, and robust conversation um, and que- an open-ended question asking that is a form of antidote to the antagonism we see uh, globally and nationally that's not happening on social media platforms. Uh, call me old fashioned, but the more that we can interact on in person with each other, um, the more this tension will be diffused. Yeah. I think of how social media brings us together in a way and at the same time makes us feel more and more isolated. And so what you just said makes me think of, is there a way to have these platforms facilitate dialogue more, facilitate more engagement that's more productive, like include more prompts that are more curious and more 
positive leading, assuming more more best intent Mm -hmm. and promote more of that as we learn how to communicate in today's day and age. So that's one thing that comes up for me. And the second is this, you mentioned that um, people bond over what they hate more than what they like. Actually, is that true? I personally feel like love is stronger than hate. That is very optimistic of me, but I feel like that's something to double click into. And I know that we're not experts on this here. So we'll have to get another expert on the pod to chat about that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I I concur. Um, Love is stronger than hate. Um, I think in the the ecosystem of social media, however, with people who don't know each other and don't have Mm -hmm. that love for each other, um, I think maybe what I'm referencing, and I'm again, forgive me for the imprecision here, um, but I think back to... um, I believe when the Facebook whistleblower came out mm-hmm. with some insights, there was some discussion about the algorithm on Facebook and how it, um, again, forgive the p- potential inaccuracy here, there was going to be more engagement over things people were agreeing over. And so mm-hmm. engagement on Facebook or and maybe other social media platforms was going to increase over disagreement more than um, love and concurrence. So I'm with you that I'd like to think that people do bond over uh, meaningful connective tissue of uh, of work and shared interests and values. I, I would like to think that is true. And I do believe that's true in real life. But I think in this social media world, there is something, um, either anecdotally or empirically that supports that people interact more on Facebook over um, the things that they're disagreeing over than like, oh, yes, I'll vote for that person too. Okay, well, conversation's over there. The bonding that happened worldwide, an example of that would be like the World Cup finals, how folks bond over football or any sports game and how do we include that into social media platforms. But more on that later, I want to really dig into the exciting stuff that you uniquely know and can bring to us today. On this note of tech companies and social media, et cetera, would love to have us transition to the Silicon Valley, Wall Street business world and your world of corporate intelligence and investigations. I would love to chat about what investors can learn from a couple of cases that are very timely. So we have Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX scandal, So on November 11th, FTX filed for bankruptcy, lost lots of investor money. This has been a big deal. Given your background and the work you do, what can investors learn from this? My favorite topic, cautionary tales um, of why investors need to be very savvy to identifying red flags before it's too late. And I think that there there are a couple of dimensions here Um, that could really help how investors think through the due diligence they engage before getting too far along in investing in a person. And very often investing in a company involves investing in a person because it's uh, in the case of a founder like Elizabeth Holmes or or Mm -hmm. Sam Bankman-Fried, they are their company. And so understanding them is, is not just a metonym for understanding the company. It tr- the company truly is them. As I alluded earlier, looking at the re- reputation for integrity, the, the track record of success, um, and quite frankly, the, the ethics 
um, personally and professionally of a founder, of a member of a, of a C-suite is absolutely indispensable before getting involved um, financially and over the long term um, with, with a founder or an executive and, and the, the company that they are bringing forth. Um, with, with someone like um, Elizabeth Holmes or Sam Bankman-Fried, there were now we look, we look back on the indicators that were there about uh, ways that they engaged in deception, ways that they did uh, misrepresented themselves, ways that they misrepresented what they were creating. Um, and there's a lot of um, hindsight is 2020 vision. What I encourage and, and what my firm for risk um, practices uh, for our clients is we, we engage the, um, the, all of the, the benefits of public records research, as well as the particular area that I focus on, which is talking to sources such as former colleagues, employees, um, investors and partners, et cetera, that would have a nuanced view of those founders of what it was like working with them. And I have all kinds of tales from my own experience of by talking to those sources, you learn, oh, there was financial malfeasance in a prior business. Um, this person does not have real financial acumen. They've had a lot of turnover in their staff because they are um, autocratic leaders. Um, actually, a theme that we've seen with a couple of the founders that we've just mentioned. And those are things you can learn in advance. Um, so I would encourage investors in private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, otherwise, uh, to, to look at that qualitatively before taking um, that big leap into working with somebody, especially somebody, frankly, who, who is excessively charismatic and has kind of a messianic complex, that to me uh, warrants and invites even more scrutiny. My ears perked up when you said autocratic leaders who may have had a lot of turnover or issues with finances in previous jobs. You mentioned talking to coworkers. I want to double click on this. One thing you've talked about is recommendations and ways to do recommendations better. So I think your thought here is not only going with the recommenders that a person gives you, but doing your own sourcing of references as well. Can you speak more here? That's right. Um, I would just uh, make a slight modification, which is um, mm. I personally and my firm is not in the business of doing references. Um, mm. That is its own, I would call that more of a human resources exercise, which is valid and important. Um, two thoughts. One, I would, I, and I've said this to clients and potential clients, um, if, if I were given a list of references to call as a professional um, human intelligence practitioner and collector, I would do a very different conversation from someone who is just doing the reference call. Oh, was, was, you know, is Jennifer nice? Oh, she is. She did a good job at your firm. Oh, she did. Okay. And she's smart. Great. Thank you so much for this call. If I were calling now, I would assume all those things are true um, about you, but if I were calling a reference, I would say, tell me about what Jennifer's like to work with and what, what's good, bad, and neutral about that. Where could she do better? How did her colleagues and peers perceive her, even if that's via hearsay? What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, wh what is her, what did she express to be her goals uh, when she worked with you? I would take it into a more open-ended realm. So th that's thought one. As thought two is um, what I specialize in is finding people I believe to be knowledgeable. They don't know that I'm going to call them. 
And the person who's under consideration for a role on a board or in a C-suite, they don't have control over who I talk to. So that creates this further distance and this third-party neutrality that makes this a robust investigative exercise. And not only am I going to ask the questions that I do as a professional investigator, former journalist, that are open-ended and not, I'm not assuming there's anything bad. That also would not be intellectually rigorous to just go in uh, looking for dirt. The way that I frame it is I'm doing a comprehensive look at this person and what their track record is, um, what's good, bad, and neutral about them. Whereas a reference exercise is confirming the good for the most part. So one, I would do a reference call like a third-party neutral uh, open-ended conversation. And two, the other bucket is let me function as a recovering journalist and find people that I identify based on my knowledge and experience to be knowledgeable about this person or this company and then have this fulsome conversation with them to learn as much as possible about that company and or executive. Fascinating. Let's take another example, Jen. We have Adam Newman and A16Z in August decided to fund Flow, his new real estate company. They cut $350 million to an individual. What would you have done in that diligence process? Not debating whether it was right or wrong of a decision, but what would you have done? Certainly. Um, I would really want to encourage an investor uh, like them or any them or anyone like them, um, if returning to the well of someone that had disappointed them previously to um, really interrogate, uh, not the person, but really interrogate what had changed. Um, not just by saying, oh, he learned his lessons, but what has he done in that time uh, professionally that would substantively indicate that changes uh, have been made and will be made and how things are going to go in the future. Um, I read something not long before we started talking um, about um, detection deception. And I came across this expert named Pamela Meyer. And I liked a, a phrase that she used that there, there's a common error that can occur when an investor conflates familiarity with legitimacy. And so in the case of uh, Andreessen Horowitz looking at Adam Newman, they already know him. And there, there is that familiarity. And there's that understandable comfort that comes from familiarity. And I would, I would posit that in that situation, that's even more reason to uh, interrogate the background, especially when there's already been a record of disappointment, and I would argue failure. So to, to pursue legitimacy, to, to interrogate his legitimacy now um, as, as, a, as another, uh, as a founder anew, um, wh what has he done in the past few years? Who has he worked with? Are there any, um, is there any broken glass in his wake? Go um, talk to or engage a, a firm like mine who's an independent third party who doesn't have skin in the game to, to take a, a close look uh, an independent look at what has he done, who has he worked with, and what did those people say? Um, what has anything changed in his um, profile of financial dealings, uh, personal property holdings, assets, things like that? Taking, taking an independent look at the whole picture 
uh, of what he's been up to um, and, and getting a sense of that from those who have dealt with him, including people that may uh, be unsatisfied. You talk about don't conflate familiarity with legitimacy. It also makes me think of Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And also makes me want to probe more on this. How do you determine that he's changed per se, besides the levers that are measurable by action? So has he changed in the financial decisions that he's making? But how do you know that that's for good? Or how do you know his values have changed? Yeah, that's an interesting thing to consider. I mean, human beings are fallible and they're not, uh, we're not robotic that you put in inputs and you get a known output. Um, so I think there are certain indicators that we just discussed about uh, can you develop a portrait from, I don't know how many years it's been since the WeWork or his affiliation with WeWork. Let's just hypothetically say it's been three years. What has he done in that three years? Has there been, this is where track record is, is, is really the, the name of the game. What narrative has there been in these three years according to um, any ref, um, corporate financial and other public records and then the people that have worked with him that could be a useful prognostication of, of what he's going to do next? Um, if, that, if that track record of these intervening years is spotty, then I would argue to his investor that, you know, maybe this is a real gamble. He could go either way. I mean, we already know that, that this could go awry for whatever reason um, that caused the, the failures in the past. Or, you know, we could give him the benefit of the doubt. But if there's a consistent track record, if all of the sources that I talked to hypothetically in this project about him were to say, you know, here are the ways he's shown he learned his lesson, and they are borne out in the following examples from my experience working with him. And six out of six sources say that. Well, that's very useful. And, and that corroborated with what the public record says. That could be very useful for uh, as an indicator that this is going to go well. But I, I wouldn't want to say that this is an exact science that I would ever guarantee to a client as a result of this project you are absolutely going to be fine, especially with somebody who's already had a very visible shortfall. The Fire Festival founder, <laughs> I don't know if you are familiar with that story. Bit, so I yeah. think he just got released and I believe he's looking to do things now. And right. in that case where there was no track record in between because he was in jail, what does one do? Now let me add on another, for instance, take an Elizabeth Holmes or a young founder, first time founder with no track record what would you advise investors do in those scenarios? Yeah, I think the young founder with no track record and, and that record, and I've read a little bit about how that can be really tricky in, in Silicon Valley because if, if it's a 23-year-old founder who's never had a, another job, then who are the former employees to talk to or employers right. to talk to? Um, and I think you know that there is a huge amount of risk there because, again, going back to this concept of track record that is really uh, almost synonymous with uh, experience and years worked and people worked with uh, and employers worked for. <laughs> so if, if there, there's a dearth of that, there's, there's not a lot of meat for an investigator like me to, to dig into. Um, now, if, if someone were to uh, hire a firm like mine and say, you know, there's this really promising 23-year-old founder who has no work experience 
we believe very strongly in his or her business. Can you please look into that? I would probably take the same kind of template, which is look at any kind of public records that are available. Maybe that that founder has some corporate filings if they ran a business in college. Um, maybe if they have any property or any kind of capital to see how they've handled money. I would say talking to people, maybe jobs they've had in college, professors, same kind of model that I would follow for a very experienced CEO. Anyone they've dealt with in the past in some professional capacity, maybe even nominally a personal capacity, to again, develop this narrative, this portrait of how does this person make decisions? Do they have any, any ethical or other broken glass in their wake? Um, and also, are, have there been any misrepresentations? I'll give you an example. I mean, people, if somebody is a college graduate or they purport to be a college graduate, you need to verify um, that they did the, the degree that they completed the degree that they did, that they took the courses that they did. And even for CEOs that are, you know, 20 years into their career, we still do check that sort of thing because there are misrepresentations that people think are small and really they are indications of um, a propensity for misrepresentation. That is very problematic, whether you're 23 or 43. So um, I think that's an apt question. Going back to the fire festival, festival guy, <laughs> the New York Times did a piece about him um, when he got, truly when he walked out of jail. I think they accompanied, yeah. the reporter accompanied him leaving, if it was Rikers Island or wherever he had been in custody. And um, I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, I mean, the New York Times is profiling him. They think he's interesting to follow. Um, I wouldn't advise somebody to immediately get involved with him. Again, track record. He needs to establish that he's repented, not just emotionally and morally, but he's repented in the way that he operates as a person of business. And that's going right. to take time. Right. Your actions speak louder than words. That Very old so. adage that mom used to say. That's right. Up. That's right. I mean, <laughs> t uh, talk is cheap and uh, right. people can promise all kinds of things. And we've seen too many cautionary tales of, of SBF and uh, Elizabeth Holmes, some others that I've mentioned that say things that aren't real, that are not backed up in what their business can offer. Um, and then there's also this other technique, which we've seen with people like, I think it's, uh, his name is Dan Price of Gravity Payments, who use um, smoke screens of other behaviors to distract from problematic um, ways of operating um, as an executive. And, and in Dan Price's case, it was, you know, engaging in completely inappropriate uh, offensive conduct, but using other kinds of um, seemingly virtuous behaviors to distract from that. And so again, the, the corroboration and the cross-referencing of what sources say, knowledgeable sources engaged through independent third parties, as well as what the public record bears out in how, um, how the business is functioning and how the person yeah. is functioning. So uh, all of that together really can, again, I say, create this portrait. And I think that's probably the most useful way to describe it. Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit about the examples of when it didn't go so well and how we could have prevented that approaches we could have taken, but also want to bring us back to this notion that you mentioned before of 
It's having a very neutral take, so not a positive bias or a negative bias, and just listing well and asking questions that actually get you to accurate information and therefore being able to make a better decision. So we're not trying to say this is such a dire state. I think given all the startups, et cetera, it makes sense that some don't go well and people are people. Exactly. And I I think um, going back to our earlier part of the conversation, um, affording um, the person you're talking to to learn about whatever the subject is, affording them the open-endedness uh, to share what they think is important is is also it's it's going to give you a fuller and more accurate picture, um, and you may be surprised by what you learn. And and leaving the 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 conversation deferring to the person who knows more than you do to guide you. Um, one, you're you know you'll you'll just learn more, um, but. Two, it gives them the opportunity to to have the stage and share what they think is important and it's flattering to them. And it also um, diffuses any potential awkwardness or tension, especially if you are talking about something difficult. I often, and just as a quick uh, tip for, for your audience, if it's helpful, with any conversation that I have, whether with a source or with a client, I say, what else, what have I missed? What else should I ask that I haven't already? And who else should I talk to? And that's how you expand your knowledge. And that's how you expand your network and who you could learn from in the future and who you could work from in the future. Beautiful. Sounds like there's so much room for collaboration with firms like yours and VC startup ecosystem. What's the state of these collaborations today? And how would, for instance, an investor or VC firm collaborate with yours, Jen? Thank you for asking. Um, I would be really keen to do more of this work, uh, this due diligence work that I've been describing in the venture capital world, precisely because of uh, some of the concerns that we've all seen come up very visibly. And and I would uh, personally and professionally like to prevent um, that kind of hoodwinking um, from well-intended investors in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Um, Certainly work already with a lot of uh, corporates and private equity investors who engage in this due diligence um, that is very important to my firm and my industry. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I I work at a firm called Forward Risk and Intelligence. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we work with a panoply of, as I said, investors and corporates and law firms, helping them to take this independent, rigorous look at companies, management teams, even topics and markets to assess you know, what's working, what isn't, what are the red flags, what are the concerns, what are the blind spots. Um, and yeah. this combination of the public records research um, that is done in a very sophisticated analytical way um, and in concert with talking to sources who are knowledgeable and engaging this journalistic experience to harness their insight um, has proven really powerful. If anyone would like to get in touch with me to hear some of those stories or to see how that applies to uh, what they're working on, I I love those conversations. And as you can tell, I really enjoy talking about my work and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that. 
we'll link a episode description how folks can get in touch with you. Thank Jen, you. looking forward to 2023, we've covered so much ground here. A note to founders, what lessons can founders embrace in this new year and beyond? Oh, that's a great question. And um, one of the things that I've reflected on and read about is um, actually how founders should vet with whom they work and from right. whom they accept investment. Because the way that you uh, cultivate your reputation and build your brand, who you are, your track record is with whom you work. And that may be, again, a little bit counterintuitive, maybe expensive for founders, but that's important too. The, not every dollar is a good dollar. So I, I, I believe in, and there, there is some stuff that I've read supporting that, that founders should uh, vet their investors as well. Um, you should also vet with whom you partner um, and, and where you appear and what you support publicly um, and the kind of values you espouse in your organization will then infuse, th those values will infuse themselves in the employees. Those employees could become former employees at some point. And you want mm -hmm. the people that are in your orbit to share your values and your priorities. And, and that starts with taking a close look at who you are letting into your circle uh, in a variety of contexts. That's such sound advice. Even goes down further to employees vetting the companies that you're working yes. for, the managers that you're working for, and so on and so forth. May we all work with folks that we admire and respect that are high integrity and share our values in 2023 and beyond. Well put. Jen, That's a great resolution for us all. And, and I think hmm. you definitely help um, inculcate that in your audience and, and your, through the conversations with your guests. And I, I hope I'm one of them. And I appreciate yes, you the opportunity are. to... Um, to promote yeah. that. You are who you surround yourself with. I so passionately believe in that. Jen, I'm so excited for folks to hear all of this and learn from you. This was such a wonderful pleasure to have you on. I want to leave though with your advice to me. What have I missed and who else should we talk to on this topic? <laughs> oh, that's, that's, oh, I'm, I'm so touched that you would take my advice so quickly, <laughs> but then again, you are a capacious learner. <laughs> and a great interviewer. So there's no surprise Aww. there. Um, it's a good question. What have you missed? I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about because we have a lot in common. Maybe next time, if I come back, we could talk more about some of the features um, of curiosity and, and interviewing and some of the dynamics of actually interviewing to the extent that that can be applied, for example, to people who work in sales and business development. Uh, or uh, in other professions and how some of the real mechanics and techniques of that can be applied to their work. Um, who else should you talk to? Well, you mentioned Professor Minson. I, I think that would be great to have on the show. And um, I, I think you have a great roster of, of interviewees and I enjoy listening to your show. Excellent. Thank you, Jen. This was wonderful. Likewise. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.